Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello. Welcome to Emotional Badass, where Moxie meets Mindful. I'm your host, Nikki Eisenhower, life coach and psychotherapist. And on today's episode, I'm discussing generalized anxiety or childhood trauma recovery. Maybe you could hear it already in the introduction, but I'm losing my voice or getting a cold. So we're going to try to get this episode out for you. This is the first time that we are recording in our brand new studio after a move. So we are getting back into the swing of things. So if you've been following my work for a long time, I think it's fair for me to say that I am a bit of a rogue psychotherapist. I leaned away from clinical practice a few years ago and towards coaching for multiple reasons, one of which being I disagree with much that is going on in modern health today. Much of what is in the DSM-5, the DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders. When I began my career, we were using the DSM-4, and a handful of years ago, we switched over to the DSM-5. It was updated. And this means that mental disorder diagnosis changes. It changes over time. It changes with what we know. And hopefully the intention, healthily, the idea is that we get better at figuring these things out. I hope that by having this platform, the show, that I am affecting the new therapists, the new doctors that are emerging from school and will shape the next decades of mental health work and research the advances, the diagnoses, and the art of healing. Because healing, self-development, even this life that we're living takes a whole lot of art form to live our best life. One of the things that I believe makes for a healthy life is the embracing of self-experimentation and everything that it means on the individual level. I've had to experiment with what works for me and what doesn't what I like, what I don't like, who I am, who I'm not, what my programming was, what I didn't want to carry forward, what I wanted to take forward from my childhood and what I wanted to and what I needed to leave behind. In this way, every day of my life has been its own experiment of fine-tuning who I am and what works for me. I guide clients on this process in their individualism, 
What I am disgusted with in mental health is that I see medicine experimenting on people. It is my professional and personal opinion that big pharma doesn't have this right, but it's taken it. Through the 90s and the 2000s, I was in graduate school in 2003 is when I began. Mental health as a profession fought for what they called parity. That meant to be recognized as a real part of health, not just mental health as some sort of side health thing, not really taken seriously by the medical community and pharmacology. So we fought as a mental health community of professionals for parity. I was taught this with only one lens, that it was absolutely right to go for this, to advocate for it, and that it was an important part of combating mental health stigma and making care more normalized. So in my 20s, I bought into this hook, line, and sinker. I've had a 16-year career working with people in mental health, the first 10 of which was what I would call a traditional clinical practice, in part because I was new. I was green. And when we're new and we're green, it's a good practice. It's a best practice to practice the rules. But I was scared of other mental health professionals, scared of what they would think of me if I didn't toe the line. When I had questions, I often swallowed them. When I had concerns, I often shut my mouth. As I aged as a mental health professional, I opened my mouth more. And I do believe it's a big part of why I got laid off from my first big out-of-school professional job working in addiction treatment because I pissed off the medical directors asking about medication. I would often say when asked, how is my client doing in a staffing meeting with all the medical staff? How is my client doing since they got put on these new medications? I would say in front of the entire staff, I don't know how to answer that because my client, the patient was put on multiple medications at the same time. So how am I or my client supposed to know what medication is doing what? This would be met with anger and frustration. Often the medical director would slam his fist down on the table in private. The other people that worked for him would talk about him having a little Napoleon complex. I was very disturbed because I had had this very naive expectation that working in mental health would put me around people that very much valued healthiness, whatever that meant, wellness, getting to the bottom of what wellness meant. And I was very disturbed that this did not seem to be what was going on. It took me many years of personal work to do my own personal healing that had shaken my self-esteem and my self-worth and of course affected me as a professional learning to step into my professional power. So for me, it was both. It was a personal and a professional development happening at the same time. It took me a long time to find the courage to use my voice and to combat what just didn't sit well with me. I'm not saying that I was wrong to practice by the book for so many years. I probably practiced by the book for a good eight or 10 years of my career. But to break the rules healthily, I believe we really have to understand the rules, why they were implemented in the first place, what those intentions were, how they've actually been carried out. And so for me to break the rules, I really had to follow the rules to the letter until I gained my experience 
and learn to step into my power with confidence and self-support. It also took me a long time to find other professionals that would share very similar concerns with me, which was tremendously validating. And I really, really needed it to help me step into more of who I was and who I am now as a mental health professional. One of the big things that I disagree with now that I bought into earlier in my career is how generalized anxiety as a disorder is diagnosed, thought about, talked about, and medicated. And I bet saying generalized anxiety just perked up many of your highly sensitive ears because likely now or at some point in your life, you have believed or questioned, wondering if you've had generalized anxiety and if you just would have this, if this was just who you are. I want to go over the medical criteria with you through my childhood trauma and neglect lens. In this episode and all that I share, I share my point of view and I share my experience just to give a different perspective, sometimes an unpopular one that doesn't win me any favors. Now with cancel culture and the reactivity that seems so popularized, these things that seem like common sense to me from my experience with my own life and with working with thousands of people over the course of my career, it's funny to me that it's almost controversial for me to just kind of speak my basic truth. What I'm trying to do is bring a dose of just old soul sense confirmed through my work through seeing so many people truly shed what no longer serves them and step into their personalized power. So let's break down generalized anxiety disorder. I'm going to go through each criteria and break it down. So the DSM, as its first criteria for generalized anxiety, has excessive anxiety and worry, an apprehensive expectation occurring more days than not for at least six months about a number of events or activities such as work or school performance. If you were abused, neglected, or had mentally ill or personality disordered parents, or even just inadequate, immature parenting, how the hell do you learn to feel calm and confident? Wouldn't it make sense that anxiety is exactly right? That that's what we learn in such a situation as we are developing into our personhood? So why do we put the disorder on the person, on the individual system, their personhood, when that individual system, that human being is doing the exact right thing? It's learning what it can learn from that environment. It is the exact right natural response to feel anxious if we are abused or neglected or had immature and adequate parenting. So why do we put the disorder on the person instead of the parenting or the person instead of the situation or the circumstance? Well, the medical community cannot ethically give medication unless a human is diagnosed with an illness. So from this vantage point in 2022, when I look back, I feel duped by my own profession. I feel manipulated and forced into having gotten on board with parity. But without that parity, we wouldn't so easily prescribe. How much money do you think Big Pharma makes in this country 
off of medication for anxiety. Yeah, I don't know either, but I bet the number's big. I couldn't find statistics on this. So each of us is put in a position to have to really dig deep. I'll talk more about healthy medication at the end of this episode. Second criteria, the person finds it difficult to control worry. Well, obviously, if we have some generalized anxiety feelings going on, we're going to find it difficult to control worry. Controlling worry is a skill. There's nothing disordered in our brain if we don't know how to control worry. It's a skill. We often naturally learn this skill of controlling worry because there's so much that life invites us to worry about. But we often naturally learn this skill if our parent is securely attached. Often we learn this naturally when a parent is securely attached, loving, present, and available. If we are raised by someone who values worry and conflates and confuses worry and love, which is a very strong dynamic, especially in a female mother who has some covert narcissism, to play the martyr, woe is me, I love you, therefore I worry. If we grow up in that, how would anyone grow up in that and not learn to overworry? We learn that worrying style the same way we learn language. So many people believe that worry is love and ick, yikes. It takes insight and a willingness to change this teaching if we grew up in this. It's a worrying way of being. So easy to look at someone and go, oh, yep, generalized anxiety disorder. But if this is the language we learned, then this is the language we learned. Someone growing up in this would think exactly right to worry. And then we grow up and get labeled with a generalized anxiety disorder. I have a problem with that. Is the person labeled with generalized anxiety struggling? Most certainly. Do they need meds or do they need coping skills and someone to teach them a different, healthier way? If they have no willingness to change this, then they may be choosing the martyrdom lifestyle. They may be growing a covert narcissism if they don't possess the insight and the drive to want this to be different inside of themselves and how they move through the world. If we want to be the victim, if that is part of our dysfunction, generalized anxiety disorder is a fabulous diagnosis and one that will bring as many pills as one would like to try. The next criteria for generalized anxiety says, the anxiety and worry are associated with three or more of the following six symptoms, with at least some symptoms present for more days than not for the past six months. So you'll notice that's at least the second time I've said the past six months. If we grew up with childhood trauma, it wasn't six months. It was every day of our life. Also, if we go through something difficult, let's say we go through a layoff or we go through an illness that we can't identify for a while, maybe someone miscarries or loses a child. I've known people who sort of had the crazy coincidence of having to put down multiple pets in a short period of time. I think it would be very natural to have some anxiety, some emotional disruption for six months. Some things we're going through 
last that long. So I don't like that six-month criteria either. I'm going to break down all six of these associated symptoms. The first one is restlessness or feeling keyed up or on edge. I think every highly sensitive person just went, ooh-wee, that is likely me. Restlessness or feeling keyed up or on edge. If you were under-soothed, under-nurtured, restlessness makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? In childhood trauma survivors, the inability to be still physically and emotionally and in the mind is very, very real. So many people have said to me in our work together, often laughing at this point at the absurdity of it all. So Nikki, am I really working with you, paying you to show me how to get still? Yep. And we usually have a great chuckle and I let them know that they're not alone that I've thought the same things through my own healing process with my main healer, Lisa, and others like meditation teachers and yoga teachers and, and even massage therapists, because I just didn't know how to contain myself inside of mind and body. The chaos that I lived in external to me seemed to get soaked up in my HSP spongy nature and then became the inside of me. The next symptom is being easily fatigued. Fatigue and overwhelm are some of the top complaints from highly sensitive people. That makes sense. When we grow up without a confidence in who we are, that means that we don't know how to show up in the world. And if we're highly sensitive, we often care a lot. And so when we care a lot, we will overthink almost every situation every moment. And guess what? That is extremely tiring. That is exhausting as all hell. If we add fears of having panic in public or of freezing and not knowing what to say, and we haven't developed real coping skills, then yes, we are going to be very, very, very tired and more tired the more interactions that we have with more people, more events. Through the highly sensitive person lens, we are taking in so much more sensory information, not just in an anxious way, just in a eyeballs and ears picking up information kind of way. That's part of our high sensitivity that we are picking up more of that information than the average person. That takes energy. That makes us tired too. More and more and more brain science is starting to prove that we have more mirror neurons as highly sensitive people. These are the same neurons that are firing in a new baby when they mirror us smiling or sticking out our tongues. It's why if you're into child development, sticking out the tongue is one of the first things we see babies do in relation to another human being. These are the mirror neurons firing, the mirror neurons at work. This is part of us being a tribal species. We need to see each other to learn, to grow, even to develop our brains. It's super cute to see that baby sticking its tongue out at us. What we don't realize is happening in that moment is those mirror neurons are firing. That little brain is cooking up all the good brain stuff it's supposed to cook up. If we were abused or neglected, even just extremely misunderstood for our sensitivity, 
or our sensitivity was seen as bad, weak, negative, then we have a childhood development full of people mirroring aggression, unimportance, annoyance, irritation, disgust, confusion. How do you think that informs a human being to feel? Even in the healthiest of homes, a parent will show a twinge of aggression or be dismissive because they're tired or grumpy or mom is having a really awful period this month. I'm saying this to those of you parenting right now because I know that that perfectionist that lives in there hears me and goes, oh my gosh, well then I better do that perfectly. No. Parenting is a summation. It's an average of what you give energetically. You do not have to be perfect. And if you try, you'll just wear yourself out and be even more irritable with your kids. In abusive or neglectful homes, there is an overabundance of empty or just crappy vibes reflected back at the child. The overly simplistic way that I can share with you from my own life is that basically my mom carried a vibe of maternal disgust for me. And that's what she mostly showed in her eyes, in her face, in her gestures. So my mirror neurons thought that I was disgusting, that I was a stinky piece of crap. So I was terrified when I was with people. I was terrified in social situations that they would somehow know or think of me as a stinky piece of crap. How is that supposed to feel inside of a little body, a little person that's developing? It's certainly not a neutral feeling. My body, my mind was right to feel anxious with that crappiness being mirrored back at me so frequently, so constantly, so consistently. The next criteria says difficulty concentrating or mind going blank. Concentration or mind going blank? Yes. Most childhood trauma survivors will report being in their head. You might have heard me in years past promoting the boundaries course as going from head knowledge to heart knowledge, that that's a big part of almost everything that I do. Non-safety in a child's development, especially in a very intelligent child, a curious child, turns into overthinking. Surely it makes sense that if I walk in a room and am overthinking where I might sit or who I might sit next to and what their vibes might be and what they might think of me and my outfit and is what I'm wearing appropriate and I don't feel confident in who I am, how I look, how I present, what I say, then I will have problems concentrating I will miss things. This is like a little side note, but maybe one day I'll do an episode just like this one on attention deficit. And if you are a highly sensitive person that is currently considering getting on ADD pharmaceuticals, I strongly encourage you to go check out Johan Hari's newest book or check out one of the podcasts. He's been on the podcast circuit the last few months. The episode that I like the best is Barry Weiss's Honestly podcast with Johan Hari. His new book is Stolen Focus, and it's basically a breakdown of how all of us have lost our ability to focus because of technology. I take nootropics for ADD symptoms, no pharmaceuticals, if you're wondering. 
And just to note it here, never stop, start, or play with any of your meds without a safety plan from your doctor. And you can get lots of different recommendations and support for that. But yes, many of us, especially as people who are observers of minute details, will report having struggle with concentration and mind going blank. The next criteria is irritability. My goodness, I struggled with misunderstanding my own irritability for so much of my younger life. What starts to happen as we grow from babies to elementary school age in a dysfunctional home is that the absence of soothing, the absence of nurturing, the absence of a soft place to fall, and or the addition of harsher, cruel parenting creates a critical voice in an attempt to take care of ourselves, but it becomes critical internally in an attempt to keep the self in check before anyone else can have the chance to be harsh with us, to lash out, to be shaming. In a childhood lacking of positive coping skills and mechanisms and encouragements, We will compensate with our little minds and come up with the subconscious logic. If I try to be perfect, no one will be able to be mean to me because I'll just be perfect. They can't get upset at anything. And then I can make people happy. I can please them. Can you hear the birth of the people pleasing? So being mean to myself is the best way to get to my best idea of feeling safe so that nobody is mad at me or coming at me. The tragedy is that we become unsafe, bullying, highly critical and harsh inside of our own selves. A general feeling of anxiety is sort of like the cake that this dysfunctional recipe bakes up. If we don't understand this symptom of irritability, then what happens is we often double down on being hard on ourselves Because it's inexplicable to us in the moment of any given random Tuesday, it might not make sense about why we're being irritable about the cat knocking over its food or the mailman knocking on the door and our startle response making us jump. Highly sensitive people are often shocked when I explain to them that irritability really isn't them being some kind of asshole. It's the result of a human system That's not felt enough calm, enough peace, enough safety, enough security, enough cultivation of knowing what the hell a soft place to fall is. It's as if we've been rubbed raw, like we have a whole emotional body of road rash. And then we wonder why we're so easily made irritable. Healing is often letting this sort of emotional body skin grow back over, maybe grow for the first time so that we can have more cushion, more protection, more safety. The next criteria of generalized anxiety disorder is a muscle tension. Now, muscle tension has been a major symptom for me all throughout my life. It is probably my number one lingering system, my number one lingering symptom today. When I first went to yoga, my goodness, I'd have to think about that, 16, 17 years ago, 
I could feel as the highly sensitive empath that I am, that I frightened a few yoga teachers with my body. They seemed perplexed about how tight my body was without any kind of like car accident that made sense to them. Where do you think the tension from an emotionally absent mother or an emotionally absent or abusive father, where do you think that tension goes? It doesn't float away like a cloud. It sticks to the little developing person that's there that has absolutely no coping strategy, no boundary, no filter. When I began yoga, I could barely get my index fingers to touch behind my back. My shoulders were so tight, they would not roll onto the back so my fingers could interlace. I could not even bend into a forward fold from the hip at a 90 degree angle. My palms would rest about two to two and a half feet from being able to touch the floor. Now I can put my palms flat on the ground with my legs, my knees straight and not bent. More flexibility than I ever thought I could ever have because my body was so tight. Because of my botched jaw surgery and then two more surgeries to try to fix it, I still have profound muscle spasms from the shoulders up. Emotional muscle tension is the muscle holding that anxious energy, that non-safety as a tension. Spasms, if you've never had them, they're not just the muscle kind of jovially moving around. It's more like a muscular nervous tick and it gets tighter and tighter and tighter and won't release and it hurts. The more physical pain that we are in, the more emotional pain and stress we are in. And the more emotional pain and stress we are in, the more physical pain we're in. So it is a funky, funky cycle. Some of us have a stronger bodily connection to emotion like my body holds and some of us less, but all of us have it. When we have this type of muscle tension and pain, what effect do you think that has on every other moment of our life? Every other thing life calls us to participate in. We're not going into a situation that's sort of at a baseline level zero. We're already amped up. We're already stressed and tense from that physical discomfort. Much more easy to slip into that irritability, to slip into that overthinking. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask them all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? Well, we hear you and we have been there too. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. Who are we? I'm Dr. Jess Steyer, a public health scientist and also co-host of the Unbiased Science Podcast. Every day, I'll chat with one or both of your new pediatrician besties, Dr. Dina DiMaggio, a general pediatrician, and Dr. Anthony Porto, a pediatric gastroenterologist. We'll talk about all the things related to our kids' health, from dealing with a colicky infant to navigating puberty in the teenage years. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, now live on all podcast platforms. Thinking. The next symptom is sleep disturbance. 
difficulty falling or staying asleep or restless, unsatisfying sleep, sleep disturbance. Okay. I feel like I just need to say, duh, after everything else I've already said, I know there are those of you out there listening right now that are thinking, yeah, Nikki, but I wasn't sexually abused. My dad didn't disappear like yours did. I'm not as abused as you were. My parents were somewhat inadequate, but they loved me and they tried. And I do think I have generalized anxiety or maybe social anxiety. In the best years of my childhood, I lived with my grandparents and they insisted, my grandmother in particular, on Catholic prayers every single night. And they did tuck me in. They did give me a kiss on the forehead and wish me sweet dreams. But I fell asleep a whole hell of a lot of nights thinking about how God thought I was a bastard because my mom was pregnant with me and unwed at the time. And I thought a lot about what it meant, what it might feel like to burn in hell for simple things like me getting mad at my sisters in a totally reasonable sibling way or thinking curse words in my head when I was getting in trouble. How do you think that kind of stuff helps the anxiety recipe? When we are highly sensitive, we really can take so much to heart because we don't have any kind of perspective as a child. We don't have a worldview. So if someone says to a child in a very literal way, that's the only way a child can take it. If I'm bad, I can burn in hell. I'm pretty sure at least one of my siblings just let that go in one ear and out the other, not being so highly sensitive. But I held on to it. I gripped it. It frightened me. So even the soothing and loving that I got, the best of intention, the trying to teach me morals and values, that was the intention of that Catholicism and that prayer. They also wanted me to have a connection with God. I think my grandmother in particular thought that would really help me because she knew there were problems with my mother and with my family. Even the most lovingly intentioned things can somehow sometimes backfire. It's not just when we get beaten with bricks or someone sexually violates us. It's in how we hold these little things and in the absence of more comfort and safety and security, which really essentially means the ability to talk through fears and confusions with a safe parent. With that lacking, where do you think all of that discomfort, fear, confusion, trying to figure out life, where do you think it goes? When I look back at my life and for so many of my clients, it's so clear that I was destined for anxiety. I couldn't have learned anything else. Now, of those six criteria I just shared, this generalized anxiety disorder criteria, just wants you to have three. I'm pretty sure most of the highly sensitive people listening right now could identify with almost all. There are a few more criteria I want to go over just to round it all out. This one says the focus of the anxiety and worry is not confined to features of an axis one disorder, meaning the anxiety or worry is not about having a panic attack as in panic disorder. It's not about being embarrassed in public. That would be social phobia. It's not about being contaminated as an obsessive compulsive disorder. It's not about being away from home or close relatives as in separation anxiety disorder. It's not about gaining weight as in anorexia nervosa 
or having a serious illness as in hypochondria. And the anxiety and worry do not occur exclusively during post-traumatic stress disorder. So this is a big part of my problem for people who had a lot of struggle in childhood. All those disorders I just read, those are all symptoms that many highly sensitive people have. Because where else is the stress and worry and learned anxiety? Where is it going to go? It's got to grab something. It's just that all of us sort of lean a little bit of a different direction. That's all. But in the human way of categorizing things and naming things, we've turned them all into their own full disorders. And if I'm really, really honest, this just flat out pisses me off because often I have to go through sessions and sessions and sessions about deprogramming this and telling so many people, I don't think you are as broken. You don't have as many diagnoses as you think you do. Could we start with more of a clean slate? And I so understand the need, the desire, the craving to have a name for what we're going through. I have a lot of empathy and compassion for that human drive. Often I think it's beautiful if we're talking about categorizing bugs or butterflies. But there's something that's a bit dehumanizing about categorizing and and breaking down our human experience, our natural and healthy, yes, healthy response to childhood trauma and neglect, to non-safety. I think it limits us instead of expanding us which I hope was the original healthy intention. But what I more believe the older that I get is that I drank the pharmacological Kool-Aid personally and professionally in my 20s. I was medicated with so many different things. I had brownouts, which means I would have dinner with someone and then two hours later I'd call and say, hey, I thought we were going to have dinner. I felt truly crazy and out of my mind, crazier and more out of my mind than I would have felt had I not been medicated. And I am sick and tired of those truths being whispered to me in my office in privacy and not really having a public forum. And yes, this scares me to talk about today. This is a big no-no in mental health. And I don't believe in any of these no-nos. We get to talk about anything freely. At best, anxiety meant they are a bridge. There is a time and a place for a medication, but like a bridge. And what I mean by that is that a medication is a short-term solution. Unless you have schizophrenia or severe bipolar Medication is a short-term solution that can calm the baked-up cake of these anxiety symptoms so that someone can begin to do the work of actually healing the inner child, of developing real and practical coping skills to learn to shut up that damn inner critic while developing a soft place to fall, learning what it is to feel confidence, to develop that, to build that inside of the self. These are things that if you grew up in chaos or instability or harm or neglect, that I believe you very much deserve to feel in this one precious life. All of us deserve a pathway to feeling calm, confident, and free from this anxiety shit cake that got baked that none of us intentionally wanted baked up. I'll read the final criteria here. I'll actually summarize this last criteria. 
And this is part of every mental disorder in the DSM. It's basically a section in, in, in every single mental disorder that says the disturbance is not due to something else. There's a whole lot of words and descriptors that go with that. But basically, it's a breakdown that the disturbance is not due to any direct physiological effects of a substance, drug abuse, or medication, or any kind of general medical condition like hyper or hypothyroidism, and does not occur during other disorders. It also says that the disturbance is not better explained by another mental disorder. When I first began my career, that was a very important part of diagnosing. And by about year three or four in my career, that just seemed to get thrown out of the collective window. So now I'll see people who were abusing a handful of different substances go into treatment and immediately they're labeled with two, three, four, five, sometimes six mental disorders. They don't know who that person is. That person doesn't even know who they are at that point. We have to start from a clean slate. We have to stabilize this person. We have to give this person some soft place to fall, some actual healthiness, some security, some coping strategies for this art form that is life, this life that challenges us in very difficult ways that really needs and requires some very artful, emotional, mental, and physical skill. So for me, for every client that steps in to do the work with me, It is better explained by what I explained in this episode, that it was the experience of your development, not anything wrong with you or the person that you are. If my way, my lens was adopted, I diagnose a person in recovery, not with a mental disorder, but a person that is engaging a recovery. That would be a positive way to look at that person that that person just hasn't had the firmest launching pad to be able to fly and really spread their wings. I'd prescribe coping strategies, ways to get into the body. I'd strongly advocate ways to silence the inner critic and grow an internalized good enough wise man and good enough wise woman to overtake that dysfunctional critical voice that cuts us down, that bullies us, that keeps stirring the anxiety pot. I have cried so many happy tears because almost all of my long-term clients who really do the work, they say to me at some point in some kind of way, Nikki, I went to this event where this thing happened and I can't believe it. I wasn't even anxious. I mean, I was a little bit anxious because I was doing something new with unknown people, but it was so reasonable. I was okay. I was grounded. I enjoyed myself. I just had a little bit of initial trepidation, and then it melted away. I was present. It was lovely. And it makes me tear up every damn time. And I wind up saying, yes, sweet man, or yes, sweet woman, nothing was ever wrong with you in the first place. You just needed some real deep nuanced coping. And now that you have it, now that you understand yourself, you are feeling confident. You are feeling calm. You have successfully gotten your inner child to trust you and to trust you to be kind, to trust you to hold yourself in a way that your parents just didn't know how. And that makes all the difference. No, you are not disordered. You are human. And then I go on to explain to them 
how I have this, well, not so secret theory after doing this episode that maybe generalized anxiety isn't really real. And maybe all the supporting disorders aren't so real. Though we, so many of us can fit all those criteria. My truth is that most of us who will resonate with this episode only really fit. If any mental health diagnosis fits, it's PTSD, it's post-traumatic stress disorder, because that is one of the few mental disorders that accounts for the situation. Compounded PTSD or complex PTSD, those are the words that really explain when the situation is every day of our childhood instead of one event, like a battle in a war or a horrific car accident or a stranger assault. Just so it's said very clearly in this episode, I am not anti-medication. I am a minimalist with medication because medications, all of them come with a very long list of negative side effects. And I say this because my experience is truly helping people become solid, become secure, become grounded, and become strong. And I don't think that's them changing. I don't think I changed in my healing in the way that I'm describing. I think it's stripping the layers of what that trauma, that dysfunction, that that neglect paints over us with. And to feel secure and grounded and strong and solid, capable, confident, secure. This is our birthright. And damn it, we get to have it. And I'm so sorry that some of us have to fight for it and work so damn hard at it. But if we do, my goodness, it is so worth it. That is part of why I do this show. I hope that I'm showing you that by sharing myself personally as well as professionally. So thank you for being with me today. Thank you for being open to lifting different lenses. You never have to agree with me. You can take what works for you. You can throw out the rest. But we all deserve to feel calm and secure and to not feel broken or labeled with a mental disorder all the days of our life. We do grow up and out of it. Today, I no longer fit even the PTSD criteria, though I do have a couple few lingering symptoms. And I worked hard at it. And you can work hard at it too. It's worth it. I promise you. Even when it feels like it's not, I promise you. Now, I have been behind in a lot of things because me and my sweet husband have recently moved out of the city to a very teeny little mountain town. And so we are officially catching up. The studio is officially set up. One of the things I'm behind on is Patreon Pay It Forwards. It's been a while since I've said that on the show, but we pay 10% forward. And I haven't forgotten, soon I will give a large gift. We do pay 10% forward. And it's just been stacking up. Sometimes we give it to a survivor, sometimes to an organization. The very first recipient of the Patreon Pay It Forward was a woman who was attacked on one of our Colorado running trails. And man, she fought like hell. And she impressed me, but she was out of work for a long time and didn't have any insurance. And our Patreon, we together supported her. I don't have a number in front of me, but through Patreon, we have given thousands over the years to various organizations and individuals. I couldn't have done that without y'all's support. Patreon also pays my team 
If 1% of the people who listen to the show supported us on Patreon, we can move into videos. We have been wanting to do that for years. And that's where we're hoping our Patreon support can go in the future. And I know that the economy is pinching everyone. We are so grateful for the support. We know that so many things in this life are pulling at you for attention and funding. I want you to know that I don't use Patreon. I don't make it like Facebook. I'm not just on there chatting all the time. It is a sort of quiet, gentle place. Everything that we put there, there's no fluff. There's no chatty cathiness just for the sake of chatting. Many of you who are there, I know the way that you use it is you just don't show up for a few months and that's totally okay because that's life, you guys. I get it. We're all managing so much. You don't have to be there every month. But what I love is seeing that people kind of come in as they want to and they go out and they come in and they go out. So some of you just throw us five bucks a month and get the exclusive episodes. Some of you throw us 10 and submit a question on the topic each month. The next topic that I'm doing the live stream on is relationships. That'll be July 20th. We do that at 6 p.m. Mountain Time. Do that conversion in your head if you want to show up. When you come to Patreon, you immediately get everything at the level that you sign up. And Patreon is how I pay my team. It's also where you can get the biggest discounts to everything that we offer. Our merch, our t-shirts, our meditations, our coffee mugs. And we always give the biggest discount to the Boundaries course every single year. We have some new things coming up for you that I will announce soon. And I want to take a moment to thank these Patreon supporters of the show. One of the things that you get when you sign up is you get a shout out. So I want to thank Debbie, Sandra, Anne-Marie, Rose, Amy, Mama on a Mission, Kirsten, Shireen, Lauren, Anne, Miss Liz, Stephanie, Mary, Carol, Vivi. Lynn, Maris, and Jessica. Come find everything that we do at emotionalbadass.com. Light and love. I am an emotional badass. You are an emotional badass. And together we are where Moxie meets mindful. I will see you right here next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>